Well, good morning. It's good to worship with you today. Our passages are Psalms 29 and 93. 29 and 93. And we'll read Psalm 29 to start. We'll save Psalm 93 for a little bit later in the service. Let's stand, though, as we read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. It breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. In Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word, this word of praise. The exhortation given to the angels, heavenly beings, to give you praise and honor in all that is due your glorious and strong name. And we praise you as well this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, Psalm 29 is a summons to worship and an invitation to trust in the Lord who reigns. As the late James Montgomery Boyce once said, this psalm is pure praise. It does not call upon us to do anything because the psalm itself is doing the only thing it is concerned about. It's praising God. And so it begins with a command to the angels, the heavenly beings, to ascribe to the Lord Glory and strength. And to ascribe is to attribute or associate one thing with another. And in this case, the angels are exhorted to associate glory and strength with God. Now, despite the fact that we use the term glory a lot, I'm not sure still that we fully understand it. It's not as if I can give you a pound of glory or describe it with a picture. Many who define glory speak of the honor or the worthiness of the thing that is glorious. One author, for example, says that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfection. It is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. That's pretty wordy for a definition, but perhaps you might think to yourself, Well, now I have to define holiness, and I have to define infinite, and I have to define manifold and beauty, and it just made a little bit worse. But as you heard the definition, hopefully what you got was a sense of trying to say that the glory of God is on display, and it's displaying all that God is. All that God is. We might say that glory 
is an overwhelming encounter with a God who is perfectly holy, righteous, mighty, good, and you could add a whole list of attributes of who God is. And that, that sheer weight of encounter starts to get at the reason why the term glory also can be translated sometimes as weightiness, right? You just feel the sheer magnitude of the greatness of who our God is. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And when we see glory placed together like that with praise, as we do in this verse, we see that, that while God is glorious simply because of who he is, yet his glory is meant to be responded to, particularly in praise and worship. And as the angels proclaim in Luke 2, the only response of God sending his son, which was a particularly glorious act of love, mercy, and grace, the only proper response was for them to say what? We'll be saying it a lot very soon here. Glory to God in the highest. In Exodus 16, the, the Bible describes how God's glory came down upon Mount Sinai and again, glory is not a substance. It's not something that you can hold in your hand. And so when the Bible says that God's glory came down upon Mount Sinai, it means that the presence of God displayed forth who he was. And in that dazzling light and thick cloud and thunder and lightning and all that happened there in that moment on Mount Sinai, Moses and the elders who went up there could say, we beheld and experienced God's weightiness, his glory. We're told that the glory of God filled the tabernacle once it was built. In John 1.14, John describes how the word, the Son of God made flesh, made it so that the disciples could see the glory of the only begotten Son. Now Psalm 19.1-2 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and day to day pours out speech. And so every time you go outside on a clear day, a stormy day, the heavens shout to you the glory of God. I was in Colorado all last week, and I texted to Wendy one of the mornings a picture of the snow, the first snow of the season fell while I was there, and I went outside. I saw the glory of God displayed in the snow there in, around this home in the mountains where I was. And then Wendy texted me back a picture of this beautiful sunrise with our green grass and the sprinklers going, and there was the glory of God in California too, right? The glory of God is all around us. And day to day pours out speech. There's no, even in the cloudy, thunderous, rainstormy day, we see the glory of God. And that's a good segue back to our passage for starting in verse 3 of Psalm 29. We read that the voice of the Lord is over the waters and the glory, the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, it says. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And when we read here about the voice of the Lord, the psalmist is describing thunder as God's voice. This is a rainstorm. 
based upon the trajectory as we follow it through Psalm 29, it's likely gathering over the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. And the thunder and lightning, which is called the voice of the Lord, the psalmist says, is full of majesty. And part of that majesty is evidenced just in the sheer power of the storm, which is described in the next verses, where it says that it breaks the cedars, the cedars of Lebanon. Those are the big ones. He makes Mount Lebanon itself to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. And a voice flashes forth flames of fire. We're, we see hyperbole here, right? We ex Exaggeration for effect. The thunder and lightning are so powerful, says the psalmist, that these, these giant cedar trees are broken. And, and a mountain skips like a calf, which is to say that it shakes. And that the thunder claps and lightning so startle the deer that they give birth early. And the rain strips the forest trees bare of their leaves. And that last comment helps us to understand that the psalmist is describing the first major storm because a dry season would have begun to dry out the leaves on the trees and that first storm drops all the leaves to the ground. Why would that be important? Well, what we need to do is imagine that the psalmist is describing this start of, of long-anticipated rains. They've had this dry season. They need the water to replenish their reservoirs, to feed their crops, much like we do in California, need that. And beginning over the Mediterranean, crossing over the Lebanese mountains, and then over the desert and valley plains, bringing the water that will nourish the crops and sustain the people. And when the Israelites saw the storms coming from the west, they saw the Lord driving them driving the wind, driving the rain on his chariot, his majesty, his kingship, his reign, all evidenced in that the Lord is sovereign, even over weather. I hope that's how you see the marvelous beauty that's all around you. Even in the, the recent hurricane in Florida, Joe was telling me this morning that 80 mile per hour winds in their neighborhood, 21 inches of rain in just a very short time period. God was riding his chariot behind the hurricane. The tornadoes, the forest fires, but also in the growth of the plants in your garden. The light, misty fog that, that starts in the morning. Everything speaks of God and his glory and his majesty. John Calvin, in commenting on this psalm, says that there is nothing in the ordinary course of nature throughout the whole frame of heaven and earth that does not invite us to contemplate God. So he's not left himself without a constant witness to his glory in the created order. And thus, even people who have never read a Bible in their lives know that he exists. They know that they owe him worship and gratitude. And as Romans 1, 18 through 20 reminds us, the wrath of God is revealed not just against those who have read Bibles and heard the gospel and rejected the good news, but even against those men and women who by right unrighteousness suppress truth for what can be known about God is plain and what has been made. Because God has shown it to us all. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. We can see that kind of echo of Psalm 29 have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. So everyone is without excuse. Well, the angels are exhorted to worship God, to ascribe to him glory for his reign over things like weather, to ascribe to him strength, and you too are commanded to cry glory. Verse 10 says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And the word flood here is also used in Genesis to speak of the flood in, in Noah's time. And in order to understand what is meant, this is a good time now to switch to our other psalm of the morning, Psalm 93, where we read that the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. You can see the parallels here with Psalm 29. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And, and I really think we ought to put, but your throne, because there's a contrast here. The world was made. The world was created. It had a beginning in time. But your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy, and holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And here are the floods, that, that term is also used. And again, it refers to the same thing as in Psalm 29, the, the flood in Noah's time. In Psalm 29, God sits enthroned as king over the flood. In Psalm 93, the floods are described as lifting themselves up as roaring against God, and yet despite their strength, God, the psalm says, is mightier. You see, the waters in Genesis 1 that covered the face of the earth and the waters in Noah's time that covered the earth represented chaos and disorder. Genesis 1 describes how at that time the heavens and the earth were without structure and purpose. But God spoke, the Spirit hovered over the waters about to bring forth functionality, order, purpose, structure. And later when the worldwide flood wiped out all of humanity except for Noah's family, the waters seemed again to have conquered God's creation. Here they were spread out over all things. That's all you could see. And it seemed like the, a return to the chaos and disorder and purposelessness of Genesis 1 but God made the waters recede and once more brought forth order and structure and purpose. And that's what Psalms 29 and 93 are saying. God is robed in majesty. There is nothing that can frustrate his purpose. His decrees, says the psalmist, are trustworthy and eternal. Not even the great floods could thwart God's will. And it's not, like I said, as if God's throne started at creation. It's not as if God said, let there be grass and trees. And by the way, I'd like a throne because now I have something to rule over. No, God did not become sovereign in Genesis 1. He was already sovereign. And that's why Genesis 1 happens. He had been king and has been king for all eternity. Isaiah 46, 8 says, remember this and stand firm. 
Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a large from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. If you think about the various floods, if you will, of chaos that we face today, perhaps you think of, of the things going on in government. Maybe it's in the economy. Maybe it's in your family and in your workplace. It, it could be a combination of all of the above. And we are tempted to conclude that there cannot be a good God who is in control. But while there are mighty waters that we face, there is one who sits enthroned above it all and is in control. And as one author says, the rebellions, I like this, the rebellions of the godless are vanity itself. But to us who often do not have the vantage point of heaven, their grimaces can be scary. Their bluster does not seem like bluster to us. Their posturing does not seem like posturing. Their great swelling boasts do seem like swelling breakers that threaten to sink us. But the promises of God are like the rocks of the Oregon coast. When the waves meet the rocks, the waves lose. So the Most High God is mightier than their noise. Does the Supreme Court say that men can marry men? That decision was made by nine mortals, every one of them dying. All the fruit flies of the earth have declared war on the citadels of heaven. And none of the watchmen on those celestial towers have even noticed. Is that good? It finishes with this. The throne of God's dominion is utterly and infinitely out of range. So if you want something here on earth to be secured... The place where it must be anchored or secured is there in the realm of God. Good words. And Psalms 29 and 93 invite you to remember that God was triumphant over the flood. That he is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who reigns in that citadel. And all of the bluster, all of the bravado of the fruit flies of the earth cannot even stand won't even be noticed by the watchmen upon the towers. And Psalm 29 ends with the words, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And so this very same Lord whose glory and strength is revealed in the storm offers to give strength to you, to bless you with his peace. And he invites you to believe that. In Ephesians 1 17, to those at Ephesus, Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. For what? So that your eyes will be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. You hear that same comment? That the Lord who gives strength and peace to his people there at the end of Psalm 29, Paul's saying the same thing to the church at Ephesus, that the Spirit will open your eyes, enlighten you to understand the immeasurable greatness that God has turned towards you, given to you. 
And he writes a few chapters later in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do what? Far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. So the God who is, Yahweh the Lord of hosts reigns, he always has. And as Christians we see now that the fullness of time has come. God has sent his son into the world, the glory of the Father, Emmanuel, God with us. And Paul speaks of that progression in Philippians 2, very familiar passage. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then we see the whole progression, right? He was in the form of God, Christ Jesus, and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Emptied himself, took the form of the servant. We'll be celebrating this soon in Christmas, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But that is never the end. It's not the end. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Right? Bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Christ Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth. And under the earth, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And interestingly, in Psalm 89, God said he would send a Messiah, a son of David who would still the raging sea. Of old, it says, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I want you to keep that Philippians 2 passage in your mind. I have found David my servant. And with my holy oil I have anointed him. Realize that oftentimes, especially in the Psalms when it says, I have found David my servant, it is speaking of David's legacy, one who would come from David. So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy will not outwit him and the wicked will not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. In my name shall his horn, in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. It's one of those psalms that the people knew and put together as one of the messianic psalms, the expectation of what the Messiah would do. He would set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Remember the sea so often in the Israelite mind represented that same thing that we saw before, the mighty waters, the raging, the roaring waters, the chaos, the disorder. But if he would set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, he would bring peace. And then we see that, right, in Mark 4. We see that the disciples are in the boat, leaving the crowd, took with them in the boat just as he was, other boats with them, a familiar story, a great windstorm arising, waves breaking into the boat, boat is already filling, but he is in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We've talked about this, I think Corey talked about this a few months ago, I spoke on a few weeks after that. But here's another aspect of this story in Mark 4. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea as he placed his left hand upon the waters. 
peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I think part of what he's asking is, even as he would later speak to the disciples on the way from Emmaus, right? And he would explain to them all that was in the scriptures. I wonder if, when he, if part of that was saying the Messiah, I mean, later when he reveals himself, I wonder if part of the explanation is the revelation of the Old Testament, especially in these Psalms of, remember Psalm 29? Remember Psalm 89, Psalm 93? Messiah would place his hand upon the sea. That's what that moment was. God exalted enthroned over the mighty waters. But this was just the first stage. The son of David who calms that raging sea goes on to the cross. He rises again and he conquers our most fearsome floods, the floods of sin and death and Satan. He promises to come again and make everything right. Every flood water of your life that is found in this broken and cursed world. And the final stage is seen in Revelation 4. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on them, 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and kind of again echoes of the voice of the Lord there. Psalm 29 And before the throne, burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And look at this last part. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Don't miss all the references to seas. Sometimes the sea, we see that roaring water and we see Leviathan and and God conquering with a hook and, and, and taking out even the most fearsome of those that dwell in the sea. And we know that God is enthroned. But then we also see these other metaphors where the sea is like this sea of glass. It's calm and perfectly still. Or in Revelation 21.1, we see that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away and the sea was no more. You see, in Revelation 21, there isn't even a sea anymore. What has happened? Well, in the final realization of and fulfillment of Psalm 89, Psalm 93. Jesus, the son of David, sets his mighty right hand upon the sea and there he stills it forever. No more foaming waves lifting up their roaring voices. No more mighty waters seeking to overthrow their master because Jesus is king. And one day as Philippians 2 described, there will be A universe-wide response. What other response could there be except you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So glory, God, forever. 
And so the angels, along with every human being on earth, every person who has ever lived, even the demons in hell, all with one voice, will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Psalms 29 and 93 tell us, the Lord reigns. How will you respond to that? How are you supposed to respond to that? Well, in a passage that you might not expect me to pull up today, in in Nehemiah 8, Starting with verse 8, it may seem totally disconnected from what we've been talking about. But we read, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the Lord. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. Already, nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I refer to that passage in Nehemiah because on this particular Lord's Day, there was not much cause for celebration and rejoicing. The people, they wanted to mourn and weep for a couple reasons. The, The previous chapters build the context where they've been facing life-threatening opposition surrounding peoples outside of Jerusalem want them to fail. They have to have one a weapon in their hand and a trowel in the other as they build the wall. They've heard the word of, of God and, and they are stricken in their conscience over their sin. And so it seems as if there is no hope. It seems as if their enemies are too strong and they live in a time in which The enemy is being victorious. But Nehemiah reminds them that the world is always attempting to discourage and destroy God's people. Friends, the world is always going to be trying to discourage and destroy us. Destroy you and me. And we need encouragement when our inclination is to be afraid And so Nehemiah reminds the people of that and says, Do not listen to these mighty waters that strive against God and his people. Instead, he says today, which is the Lord's day on that particular day, just as it is today, he says, You shall not mourn or weep. Put that into words for us today. You shall not be afraid. You shall not fear the one who sits in the governor's seat. You shall not fear the ones who make decisions for the state. You shall not fear the price of gold and silver and the stock market down. You shall not fear the challenges that you face at this moment. Instead, this is not a day for mourning or weeping. It is a day for rejoicing. Even as we read in Psalm 100, we are commanded to make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving. There's there's this thought that how could we possibly have come through those doors this morning with anything but shouting and singing and joy There's there's realism in here. We know God's people stand against mighty foes. 
But the Lord says, come into my presence with singing and shouting, ready to receive thank, uh, forgiveness with thankfulness, acknowledging that he is full of majesty. We've just seen it as we went on our way here. The sun rose this morning. The clouds are in the sky. God continues to take care of all of his creation. The wind was blowing. We profited from all of the things that the man thinks that he has developed in technology, whether it was the moving car, the lights that we turned on in our home, the food that was so easily provided from cooking things or baking things this morning. So many things to be thankful for from God. His mighty power. And I like this passage from Isaiah 9 where it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Pay attention to that part. As they are glad when they divide the spoil, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We usually don't read those first verses. But that line that stands out, should stand out, is we are glad when we divide the spoil. You see, because Christ has come, and because the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace is here and he reigns, we are more than conquerors. And we are as those who divide the spoil. And so Isaiah 35, 3 says, strengthen those weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, because your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Or Psalm 66, shout for joy to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name and glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. You are called this morning to acknowledge the victory of Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God, and we need to shout and rejoice and sing today, especially on this day, as Nehemiah said, the Lord's Day when our temptation is to fear the future and wonder what will happen in the days to come. Well, we know what will happen. The Lord God who is robed in majesty reigns. We must rejoice. We must ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength to his name. The victory is assured and we need to start living as people who are dividing the spoil, not as people ready to be conquered. God's sovereignty over men's affairs is not compromised even by the reality of sin and evil in the world. Listen to this from Psalm 135. For I know the Lord is great. He is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas, in all the deeps. You can see again that, that common, common metaphor over even of the seas and the deeps. 
He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, Psalm 29, who makes lightning for the rain, brings forth the wind from its storehouse. We hear it over and over again, and you are called to believe it. And in the end, you must see God, the one who reigns in heaven. There is no such thing as mere coincidence. There is no such small affair of life. As Jesus said, not one sparrow will fall to the ground without your Father's will. You are called to believe that you are his beloved child. And he imparts to you, as Psalm 29 concludes, with strength and peace and victory. And I end with this exhortation again from Psalm 135, which is the result of what we just read. What are we to do? It says, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord. That's us right now, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, and Israel his own possession. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are the glorious king who sits enthroned on high. The glorious king who in majesty has formed the winds and the rain and the sun and all that is around us. Who comes forth and rides forth in power and the mountains shake. The mighty ones, the, the mighty waters... The rulers of this age, they rise up, they try to shake their fist against you. Even as we saw months ago in Psalm 2, they rage against your son. And you have said, ha. So many times it talks in the the Psalms, you've inspired the psalmist to say that you laugh. You laugh at these mighty ones. And you, uh, you say there's only one thing to do, and that is to kiss the Son. For he is victorious. Father, help us to be also as ones victorious, more than conquerors, ones in, for whom every promise is yes in Christ, ones for whom we have been invited to divide the spoil, ones for whom you have said that using your spirit and the gospel, we will bring down mighty strongholds, Father, let us live in the reality of these truths. Let us take the sad and conflicted and disordered world for your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.